When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef and they're 100%. Mm, they're so good they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk with Jack Winner of Die Magazine. He and I have had some good conversations over the years, both on the podcast and off. We started talking about the first round of the playoffs, and that is the lens for most of the conversation, but we end up getting onto a lot of other things. We talk about the Sixers and the Jazz and a couple of the teams that are on their way up, and then the last 15-20 minutes of the podcast are more large picture issues, players as brands, a couple of ideas that I throw out at him of ways that the league can improve their presence. And I really loved that part of the conversation too. The whole thing runs about an hour 15. I really loved it. Honestly, this is one of my favorite podcasts that I've done as a part of Real GM Radio. So I hope you like it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thanks so much for coming on. You know, Danny, it's good to be here. I think the last time we talked, uh, we We've been trying to do this all season, it feels like, and we just keep exchanging emails, and then I forget them because I'm so busy. But I think it was uh, when Kerr was hired, um, and then we talked like a couple weeks after that, and I think we forecasted really good things for the Warriors, and now here we are. Yeah, they've, they've done really well maybe right. before last night. Uh, but yeah. let, let's, let's start with the Warriors Pelican series. I took a lot out of that a lot a lot out of that because the Pelicans I thought played incredibly well. They ended up not winning any games, but I was impressed with how they performed even in four losses. Uh, I really was too. And the big question for the Pelicans um, that no one has really talked about all year, you know, and and by no one I more mean people who kind of follow the NBA more casually. They think the Pelicans are a very strong defensive team, um, and they mostly just think that because of Anthony Davis and. You know, all the highlight real all the highlight real plays he makes on that end, led the league in blocks, obviously can, you know, defend players like Steph on switches, you know, fairly capably. But defense was really their problem all year long. 
and then they I thought they actually did a pretty good job against the Warriors on that end at times during that first round series. But the problem for them was that when Omer Ashik was on the floor with Davis, they just couldn't score. And once you take Ashik off, you're putting in Ryan Anderson, and how do you get stops? You know, that was a question that obviously plagued them throughout that series, and it's one they'll have to answer, you know, I think, going forward, too. Yeah, I, I think that the challenge with Anthony Davis, and it's kind of, I wouldn't call it ironic, it's more coincidental that I asked him one question pre-draft, and that was, what position do you think you defend? And mm-hmm. he said then, he's like, I, I'm a power forward because I'm not big enough to guard centers. And while you don't have to answer that question one way or the other, because you can bounce in between the two, you do need to have an understanding of what he wants to be and where he wants to go defensively when you're thinking about long-term who you put next to him. I always loved him as a five. Um, I just assumed he'd bulk up, and he has, obviously. I think he's right around 240 now, and I think he'll continue getting bigger, if not getting much more weight. He'll probably top out at around 245, 250. Still look pretty life just because he's so long. But the problem with him is that he doesn't have a great base. Um, And, you know, if you're going against a guy, if you're even going against a guy like Mark, Mark Gasol, who doesn't necessarily get great low post position, but... You know, if you're if you don't have that great base and you can't push him off the block and kind of force him away from his spots, you know that just allows a team a team like Memphis to kind of to kind of get comfortable, and that's not what you want, obviously. And obviously, Davis has said uh, when when Ashik was signed this summer, he was very very excited about guarding fours and getting out on the perimeter, and that's kind of how uh, that's kind of how they used him, kind of as a all court disruptor on defense this year, and that puts him in a very very tough spot. He obviously has the talent to do it, but he just has so much responsibility, and uh, a lot of it would be mitigated, obviously, if they made him the five um, and kind of played a more conservative defensive scheme. But you know, given their roster construction, I don't see that happening right now. The kind of cruel irony of all this is that our f- mutual friend Ethan Sherwood Strauss talked of early on about the idea of Anthony Davis being the perfect guy to defend stretch fours, and that's completely true, but what I thought about during the Warriors series is that he would have been even more perfect before stretch fours, because then he could have defended power forwards and still been more able to help. In today's mm-hmm. NBA, it's much harder to do both, and that's something that the Warriors did with Draymond Green on the four most often, is that they forced whoever the four guys were guarding the four smallest players to pull out. And so when that was happening with Davis, it opened up so many driving lanes for everybody else. So then they moved Davis to the five a little bit more, and that worked. And that's why, to me, the answer for Davis is to have one player each way. And there are so few true centers in the league right now that I think you can afford to have a primary who is a power forward, like probably a a healthier Ryan Anderson would be a reasonable, would be a reasonable option. And then you have a secondary, the guy that I thought of, obviously not him now, but as a younger guy would be somebody like Kendrick Perkins, who his whole role is to body up those big centers. And so you just have, you just understand who your opponents are. And I think, I think that's the solution for them, but obviously it's hard to get those right talents. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Ashik is a, is a relative, uh, relatively good comparison for a for a prime Kendrick Perkins. Uh, he's probably not the guy who we thought he was two or three years ago. I was I was so high on, so high on Ashik as to think he might be a you know he might get Defensive Player of the Year votes. He's not that guy. But for the Pelicans, um, I mean, you mentioned it when when the Warriors went you know they they go small, uh, but they kind of play a big small, obviously because Draymond's so versatile defensively. Um, but what they do is they stretch the floor. And they make it really, really hard for a guy like Davis, who, you know, is obviously an incredible athlete, runs like a deer, 
really, really long and has great natural defensive instincts. Um, but they just make it hard for him to be to really make the all-encompassing impact a guy like him should on that end because the floor is so spaced. You know, for them to for the Pelicans to do that and really get better on that end. Uh, they're just going to have to answer some questions, um, and obviously they're going to they're set offensively. I mean, they were very very good offensively uh, against the Warriors, and really were for most of the season. And Davis is just going to continue growing. He was unbelievable against Golden State. I mean, I don't. We're obviously very very high on AD, but I don't think anyone saw even an outburst like that coming. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was. Pretty, I'm pretty sure it was somewhere around 32 points per game on stellar efficiency numbers. You know, the sky's the limit for him, obviously, and offensively the Pelicans will be fine defensively is where they is where they kind of need to shore up going forward yeah and one of the challenges they have with Tyreek Evans he's obviously a very good player is that I think you would the ideal with him is that you'd like to have one of those kind of versatile defenders and Quincy Pondexter could be this guy Quincy did a nice job at moments Stephen Curry is not the best cover for him no but but they have Drew Holiday for that reason, and so what I think that they're what they can do with their current core is that they can have Tyreek slide a little bit between the two and the three defensively, and then Pondexter guard the other one as Drew guards his guy. And I think that trio does a really nice job. And then you can at the four five spots you can do whatever you want because none of those guys can slide up. So you do right. what you do what you're going to do with those with those players and while I think you could obviously upgrade and their bench needs a ton of work which is unfortunate because they don't have their pick because they traded for Oshik but mm-hmm. they're I think so highly of them and that gets into something that I've talked about with a couple people and it's obviously a little bit aside from the playoffs though it's playoff related is I feel like next year's Western Conference if they don't go to a top 16 format is going to be brutally hard to get in even if Dallas falls off Oh, it's it will absolutely it will absolutely be more difficult. I think New Orleans, you know, has a chance to win 50 games next year, uh, depending on depending on health. And they've just been bit by the injury bug the last two seasons, you know, arguably more than any team in the league. Um, and then obviously Utah, who I've been high on, who I frankly was high on far too early. I expected really good things from them last year as opposed to this year. Uh, Utah will be much better. Who knows what's going to happen with Minnesota if they're a little more healthy? Wiggins takes maybe. Not just this, not just a big step. If he takes a leap to kind of potential superstardom, uh, the West is going to be even more loaded next season. And like you said, despite what happens with Dallas, you know, you thought it was bad in 2014, 2015, and by bad, obviously, I mean good. It's going to be even more wild next year. Yeah, I'm really high on Utah too. I I said before, you know, as the off season was starting for them, that I thought they could win about 45 next year. And depending on the what they do in the draft and in, mm-hmm. in the off season, I could see them eventually, you know, turning into a 50 win team. But they're going to be in that circumstance, like so many young teams, where they're going to be very vulnerable to injury. They're a very good team. They're a little bit deeper than some other ones. But I could definitely see them having a season like the Suns, where they're close, but they're not close enough. And that gets into, for me, I, I think there's a possibility that next year's West is the hardest to get into in the playoffs in NBA history. No, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. And just quickly on Utah before we forget and get off onto something else, kind of a big question I have for them is if they have enough if they have enough shooting. With their projected starters of Exum, Burks, and Hayward, you know, that just doesn't, that just doesn't leave much space. And obviously Hayward is going to be doing a lot of ball handling, but Burks needs the ball in his hands too, and Exum does as well. Uh, and when you're playing with two guys like 
Favors and Gobert, who don't necessarily space the floor, uh, though they have actually showed some nice big-to-big passing here in the last two months of the season. You know, it's just space becomes hard to come by on offense. And, uh, you know, offensively is obviously going to be the big question for them. They were the best defense in the league uh, once they traded Cantor uh, on, at the trade deadline. They're going to be absolutely dominant on that end next year. Offense is where the, is where the problems will be for Utah. And uh, it's mostly because of lack of space. And I think it'll be interesting to see how they kind of try and mitigate that concern in the offseason. Yeah, my vision for them, and that's a great point, is that they use Burks and Exum ra- and more as replacements rather than as, as a pairing. And I right. would look, look for a guy, I don't know if you've seen much of him. I haven't seen much of him recently. I watched him when he was younger. But Mario Hazonia, to me, is the guy for them. He's a good shooter. He's in transition. This is a team, to me, where Utah is going to succeed in the early days is actually paralleling the Warriors in the in this element is that they should run off everything. Yep. And so they get stops. You have Exum, who is a really athletic guy. Hayward is nice in the open court. I like him a lot. So if you got a guy like Hazonia to basically be the to be kind of the Gerald Green of this team in the sense of you know <laughs> hustles, gets transition buckets hitch threes, maybe shoots a little bit too much. And then what I like about him, too, is that he has the 2-3 size, so you can bounce in between. And so then you use Burks, and then ideally you have a perimeter defender in that group, and then you get somebody else who can handle the ball. And I, I think you're a lot closer. And then you, you get a, if you can add a stretch four, that right. can do something. Then you can then you can get a little more versatile. Maybe you can get you can use some more defensive talents. I don't think Exum is going to be great at least for now. I ludicrously high on him. I had him number one in last year's class. I'm a little bit lower now. But I, I think it's nice to have a secondary ball handler, but they already have that in, in Hayward. I mean, they, they can do that. So I think that this is a very big summer for them. Next summer will be big for them, too. Right. But they have the potential to really be remarkable. And if you assume, like all of us do, that Oklahoma City will be in the playoff picture next year, you start to wonder about how tight the margin is going to be for some of these teams. I mean, we could see a team that was in the top four this year not make the playoffs, not because they had a bad year, but just because they got jumped. What we'll see, I think, unfortunately, is that just uh, you know an unfortunate injury is what's going to kind of tip the scales for a team or two in the West in terms of whether or not they make the playoffs. Uh, we saw that this year, obviously, with Oklahoma City, um, and I think we'll see uh, even more next year, just because, like you said, there's teams are so tightly packed. There, are, I think I haven't counted, obviously, but I think there are 11 potentially very good teams in the West next year. Um, you know, assuming assuming Utah makes the jump, we think they we think they will, um, and Phoenix uh, kind of rebounds from what basically amounted to kind of a lackluster year this year. It's just it's going to be wild, and we're kind of seeing now, actually, in the Western Conference semifinals, just how tightly packed it is now. Um, yeah. Again, and for a while, kind of towards the last two months of the season, and it appeared that you know we, this juggernaut that we thought the West would be was actually anything but. It seemed like the Warriors and the Spurs had kind of jumped ahead of the pack. And while that still might be the case with the Warriors, obviously that wasn't the case with San Antonio. Yeah, and one other thing before we get back into the playoffs is that I, the way that things are shaking out, and obviously we don't know if they're going to change the format, is that I feel really bad for the Phoenix Suns. I think that mm-hmm. they've committed to a group that, while they're very good, they they would be a they'd be probably close to the fifth seed in the East. They're just failing. They're just they're just at the wrong wrong place at the wrong time. And then the other dynamic with this is that the Philadelphia 76ers should be incredibly happy with this development because they have the Lakers pick next year. Probably they're not probably not going to get it this year. Right. And 
even to me, even if they get Kevin Love, and I personally don't think they will. I don't think they will thing, either. Yeah. But even if they, even if they got their best case short term scenario, so let's let's say that's Kevin Love and another good player, not a max player, but a good player. I don't think they make the playoffs. And it's just, it's. I totally agree. It's tough for me to see who they surpass, who is in the playoff field this year, let alone teams like Oklahoma City and Utah and Phoenix. I'm not sure what avenue you take to that. Even if, it, like you said, even if they sign a guy like Love and then kind of um, complement him with a B free agent, if you will. I don't see it. Yeah, like let's say they get Love, Collie Stein, and some point guard. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think that team. I think that team is on the outside. I, I think they're pretty good. You know, I think they're probably in that mid to high thirties range, maybe even the low forties. But right. I don't think there's. I don't think there's really any chance, barring catastrophe like we're seeing in the playoffs from injury wise. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think you're going to see that get anywhere close to the playoffs in the West. Well, yeah, you said they might be pretty good, and that just won't cut it um, in this conference, as we saw this year. You know. Um, and that's a shame for Lakers fans, of course, and a shame for the NBA because obviously it's better for the league when the Lakers are when the Lakers are good and competitive and making the playoffs. But uh, they have a very tough road back to legitimate contention, and I think we'll see that here over the next couple of years. Yeah, it's it's a shame for the league that three of the four marquee franchises, and it's amazing that the one that's being run relatively well is the Clippers. Right. That that three of the four are are in in trouble, and I, I mean I think that all of them will have the ability to pull themselves out mm-hmm. because they benefit from 2016 and the cap's going to explode, and and as I've said for eons, cap space is more valuable for those teams than anyone else. Right. But they're going to have to be in the right spot, and, and I think that's why what the Nets did will always bother me because they committed to a group that was fine but that like if you had if you were in a less you know a less marketable city and this is I'm not criticizing cities like let's say Milwaukee I'm not saying Milwaukee is a bad city I actually really like, <laughs> I actually really like Milwaukee I've been there a few times but it's harder for them to pull free agents I think that the court that they did would would be pretty good but they have the possibility to get guys who are competing for MVPs Mm-hmm. And granted, Houston just did that, and I give them all the credit in the world for getting Dwight Howard, but I think that you have to aim high, and I think the Lakers are going to do that, but that's the other huge factor with them. With I wrote a piece for the Sporting News, cheap plug, and talking about how Rajon Rondo would be a mistake for them because they can do better than him. I've, I'm absolutely on the same page with you there. I've been, I was down on the Rondo trade when it happened, um, and obviously I, I didn't think it would go quite this poorly, of course. No one did. Um, Right, no one did, but um, you know, I think there was a report from a couple of weeks back that the Lakers have kind of soured on adding Rondo, and they only and they only would if he was more receptive to a uh, you know to a far more reasonable contract than the max that some people thought he might get, and that he and even he likely thought he might get before the trade. They the Laker for the Lakers' sake, they absolutely need to kind of play the long game with Rondo in free agency if he's really the guy they want, um, and kind of let the market dictate what they'd pay him. Um, because I, I, I really don't think it'll be there. Uh, in today's game, Rondo is a very, very awkward fit. He was always a strange fit, but in a game where the, in a game where the floor is spaced, you want ball movement. Um, you know, especially if he's not going to be a plus plus defender, he's an odd player. And, um, especially, uh, especially for a team like the Lakers, who runs Byron Scott's offense. Uh, I'm not sure how he fits there either. So we'll see what happens with, with Los Angeles and Rondo, but, if I were a Lakers fan, I would not want my team to sign Rondo, to say the least. 
Well, let's move on to the still relevant teams. And the, the series that I think we all thought the most of in the first round was Spurs Clippers. Oh. And I feel like we're going to see the reverberations of this for a long time. You know, it's one of those series that it's entirely possible, though a lot less likely now that the Clippers won game one for reasons that I will... I, I, I understand them. I don't want to trash the Rockets again. I already did that on Dunkin'. <laughs> but the... I had thought about the idea that this series would be one of those kind of an oasis series in the sense that it would be it was wonderful for basketball fans. It was a well played series, but that it would have it might not have the impact on this playoffs because there was a possibility that the winner, especially with Chris Paul's injury, was going to lose. But I feel like there are also long term implications for the series far beyond this season. Uh, how do you mean? Just out of curiosity. Well, I think that it's more likely that Duncan and Ginobili come back. Because I, yeah. he, I, I was sitting there, and granted, I, I have a bias towards having Tim Duncan in my basketball covering life. Well, not covering life, but just I like watching him play basketball. And Who doesn't? I, I feel like this would be such a, a weird way for them to go out. Yeah, and maybe 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 Manu leaves, but I feel like they're going to go at the same time. I don't know why. It's just with their relationship and everything else. Manu had a a little bit of a statement, and I believe it was an Argentinian paper today, and it was kind of yeah, talking about his that. time. My, I admit that my Google Translate might not have been the might not have been perfect. I don't I don't <laughs> speak Spanish, but I, I think that it would be a real shame if they did that. And the Spurs have some real opportunities this summer. And what I started thinking about as I was working on some pieces on them is if those guys decided to come back and decided to do it on a relatively cheap salary, they could be a very different type of super team if they really wanted it. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree. I I think a big question for them, you know, assuming that uh, Timmy and Manu come back is what happens with Danny Green. You know, if they go after some of the kind of starry or free, agents who it's long been reported that they've had interest in, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, LaMarcus Aldridge, Marcus All, those type of guys. Uh, well, one, they'd need Timmy and Manu to take big pay cuts for that. But two, they might have to sacrifice Danny Green. And, you know, I'm not sure that, um, well, you know, it'd be worth it if you find, if you found a guy like Aldridge or Gasol, but that would just really change the kind of dynamic of their, of their team. Um, you know, when you have guy defenders like like Kawhi and Danny Green on the perimeter, that just kind of allows for a lot of mistakes, um, you know, by other players, especially with a backline helper like Timmy. But without Danny Green, you know, things are just more complicated, and every little error is magnified. So we'll see what happens there. But that's a big tipping point that kind of a lot of uh, maybe more just casual league followers probably probably aren't considering as much. Yeah, and, and that defensive impact is something that I always thought would be a tipping point in a Warriors-Spurs series, and I think we could see the same thing in Memphis, because Memphis is one of the other teams that has two legitimate, yep. huge-plus defenders, and the difference with Memphis is they have they often play three. I mean, I would say that they're not all at the same caliber, but Tony Allen is, is up there as well. And I think that's part of what Memphis is doing that is giving the Warriors so much trouble once Conley got back, is that... Th- Conley, Lee, and Allen are all quite good, and they talk well, and they communicate, mm-hmm. and they have good instincts, and that's hard for any team to, to handle, much less a team like the Warriors that really has one primary ball handler, and even really, he's he's really the only secondary guy, too. They have other guys who can pass, and they have a system, but Curry right. is Curry is the alpha and the omega in terms of Golden State's offense. And that's, in Golden State's starting five, who would you even say is the secondary ball handler? Uh, I mean, I 
I guess it would be Clay, but Clay. But I, I, I guess, I guess, but based on what I saw, based on what I saw in Game Two, it was definitely Draymond, right? Yeah, what and and Draymond also one of the one of the huge credits for Steve Kerr with this team is that he's done a great job instilling the confidence in the bigs that they can initiate. Yeah, absolutely. And so I would say in some ways Draymond isn't a secondary ball handler; he's a he's a substitute primary. Yeah, yeah, sure. which is fine, and and that's and and that's kind of what most secondaries are. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the Warriors have that as a major problem. I, I don't want to relitigate the Kevin Love trade, but that was part <laughs> of the reason why I wasn't as high on Clay Thompson as the long term fit with this team is that what I saw last year when the Clippers beat the Warriors, and obviously there was a lot of other things going on, particularly Andrew Bogut's injury, but when you eliminate some of what Stephen Curry does so well, it is very hard for this team to to get good looks regularly. And that's what Mike Conley being out there did because Conley does a great job of stopping a team from doing what they want. Yeah. And and also something Marcus Ole said after the game is that they were able to get guy get Warriors players going in a single direction. And when you do that defensively and you got and you know each other well enough you see a lot of good defenses do this. Then you you it's kind of like in football if you had if you had called a play and then you had it like you and you were calling a lateral and only your team knew it. And so then you you can adjust to something because you know where it's going more than the offense does. Mm-hmm. And so they can get into those circumstances with these guys and if you're going to let the other five guys on this Golden State team beat you, if you're Memphis you have a shot if you can score any points, and they scored enough last night. The thing you love about a team like Memphis uh, with perimeter defenders like Allen, Conley, and Lee is that they can basically switch assignments on the fly. You know, in secondary transition, they can switch off off ball screens. They can switch on ball screens if it's if it's small, small, and really not give up too much. Um, but then when you know when you're matched when they're matched up accordingly to their position, like uh, Conley's guarding Steph, and then Allen would be guarding Clay. Uh, you know they do an, obviously an exceptional uh, an exceptional job there. You're not going to bully Tony Allen in the post, for instance, like Clay does to some smaller twos, and Conley just uh, Conley just does a fantastic job getting over screens and getting skinny and really staying attached to Curry both on and off the ball. So yeah, obviously that that's a major major advantage for Memphis, and it's just something that the Warriors you know haven't seen haven't seen very often because you know other than Memphis and perhaps San Antonio, you know there just isn't a team with with the caliber of perimeter defenders of the Grizzlies. Yeah, when I watched the their first series against Portland, the main the main emotion I felt was just depression because <laughs> this Portland team was so fun to watch and was such a good balanced team. Wes Matthews was huge for them that yeah. uh, my my sincere hope with them just like with everything everything else is that we get to see them in the playoffs at full strength and they have huge question marks and one of the one of the challenges with all this stuff, and I've written about this before, I, I, you might have as well, is that when guys are hitting their third contract, which is the first time they get unrestricted free agency, we learn a lot about what they want, and mm-hmm. and th- there are no wrong answers. You know, if they want to get money, they can get that. If they want to go to a winning team, if they want to play in a nice area, you know, we're going to see the same thing with Kevin Love, presumably this summer, maybe next summer. But Lamarcus and Wes Matthews have that right now, and. It would be, as a basketball fan, it would be nice to see them stick it out in Portland, but I I had this moment of dread during that series of, if this, if we never get to see it, I'm going to, I'm just going to be disappointed. 
Well, and that brings up a whole bigger question for the Blazers, and if and it's that if this group stays together and Lamarcus resigns and Wes resigns and Robin Lopez resigns, he's a free agent as well. Just how high is their ceiling? And I think we saw it kind of. We kind of we kind of saw it here uh, this season, just right before right before they kind of hit a slide in mid January. Just how good they could be. They were I think they were top seven or eight in both offense and defense. Uh, they were right in line for second in the West, and then the injury bug hit them. Damian Lillard stopped playing so well, and uh, they kind of became the middling playoff team that you know they ultimately were. But you know, if if this is their group going forward for the next couple of years, I'm just not sure that they're going to be good enough. You know, barring a catastrophic injury, you know, to a guy like Durant or Curry, uh, Gasol, someone like that, uh, I'm just not sure they're going to be good enough to come out of the West, which, as we discussed earlier, will be stronger than ever going forward. Yeah, and some of that goes to the idea of defining success. And yeah, I, I think that if you're Portland and you can get to that level, what I, how I would define them is as a conference finals team. And when you're a conference finals team, that means a few breaks could happen and you could do, you could go beyond that. You know, you could go to the NBA finals and if you go to the NBA finals, you can always win it. But uh, if I'm them, you know, that's a really good ceiling. You know, if you can right. be, if you can be there, especially in a a smaller market, you know, Portland is, is a city that has trouble getting, you know, that would have trouble pulling guys with cap space. They have much better chances at retaining their own guys because the people who play there seem very happy with it. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're in that situation where you have to be, you have to be honest with yourself. And there, there's a parallel to it, which is the opposite, which is understanding. And this is something that Portland did very well, understanding that you need to build a team over time. And, that's the opposite of that is what I think happened with New Orleans, which is that they found they had this great player in Anthony Davis, and they didn't realize that they were going to have him for eight years, or the owners, actually, more accurately, the owners said, we want to be better now. Mm-hmm. And so they sacrificed assets for the short term when the short term didn't really matter for them. And I think that what Portland has to, what they have to grapple with, and some of it is out of their control, is... I think they should be thrilled with being in that place, and then maybe you hit maybe you hit the the jackpot and you get a guy picked in the in the early twenties that is a fantastic player and can change that scope. You know, maybe you can get that guy, and and they certainly could. And and for me, there are a series of teams that you know that would be great for them. I mean, Toronto is Toronto might have gotten accidentally pulled into that boat by doing so much better last year that they kept the team they had as opposed to being more aggressive and getting something better. Just quickly on the Blazers before we move on, you know, I was saying how, you know, we're not we're just not quite sure what their ceiling is. And I agree with you that, you know, a team that could potentially make the Western Conference Finals is a viable contender to get to the NBA finals. Uh, you know, that's a team that should be kept together. But I'm not sure that you know, ownership and a vast majority of fans believe that only one team can win. You know, their last game of the season. And however, you know, most teams of I'm sorry, fans of the team that don't, you know, are always disappointed and always and always asking to do more. But what could swing a team like the Blazers, for instance, who already has their core guys, Aldridge, Batum, Lillard, Matthews in place, should they be re-signed? Is just small steps from guys like C.J. McCollum and Myers Leonard, which we kind of saw against the Grizzlies, obviously. They both were very good at times, and they're young. You know, they can get better. Um, you know, the small small steps from ancillary pieces can really, really help a team that just might be on the fringe of being a legitimate contender, and the Blazers have a couple of those guys. So for them to reach that level, they'll just need McCollum and Leonard to step up. 
And something that we've learned from these playoffs and throughout the regular season is the benefit of being able to get 48 solid minutes from every position or as many positions as possible. That's yes. something that I give Daryl Morey massive credit for with the Rockets is that the Rockets have done a, a really nice job of getting low-asset low Low risk people for that. Actually, another team that's done that is the 76ers. They just don't have the guys above that. Yeah, they, that's they a good don't. Point. They don't have the top end. But guys like Robert Covington. I mean, Covington is clearly to me a rotation player. And just so, real, real quick before we move on, because we're not going to talk about Philly again. I love watching Philly. By the way, they're just they're one of my favorite teams to watch in the league. Anyone who's down on Philly on their process, I get it. If you think it's you know, a disgrace to the game or whatever, and you're, you know, flaunting the rules, you know, whatever whatever your opinion may be. But that team plays very, very hard. Uh, they space the floor as much as they can with, you know, limited shooting talent, and Brett Brown really has things going in the right direction there. And I, I really think we'll start to see, we, you know, we actually saw it in the second half of this season. Once Sterling's Noel started coming on, like you said, Robert Covington was a find. You know, maybe guys like Jeremy Grant, you know, turn into viable rotation players. But I, I think we'll start to see the steps, you know, in their road to legitimacy next year uh, when Joel Embiid comes back. And I, I really think things are going in the right direction in Philly, despite their record and despite the kind of public laughingstock they've become. I wholeheartedly agree. The The challenge with them in, in some ways now is they have so little money on the books is when do they want to spend? Yeah. Because if they if they want to... They can be a, a factor. I don't know that they'll get people this year, but they can be a factor in some things. I'm actually toying with a piece that we'll talk at length about this. But they're, uh, but they can do that, and they do want to. You want to put in the money when you're when you think you're about a year or two away. This is actually something the Blazers did with Wesley Matthews. You want to get those guys so that they're coming into their own as the other guys are moving into it, because then they can gel together before their prime. And that's something that the Oklahoma City core did. Very, they did very well building that core before they traded James Harden. Is that those guys were able to improve their chemistry before they reached their peak. And I mm -hmm. think that's what you want if you're the Sixers. And I like a lot of the, thing, the things that they have. I mean, I'm going to say something ridiculous right now. I thought that if they had, if they kept the Miami pick and they wanted to, I thought there was a very real chance that they make the playoffs next year. Now I think they wait one more year. I don't think that's crazy. You know, we don't we don't know what the kind of lower middle class of the East will look like, uh, right? And I I, th I really do think they showed enough. The Sixers showed enough this year uh, in the second half again, especially. Um, you know that that they might be a thirty thirty five win team next year, depending on Joel Embiid's impact. Uh, you know, they're they're going to be a top ten defensive team next year. I think we can agree there. But just kind of a more specific, nuanced question on that end is how you play Embiid and Noel together, because for the most, for the majority of this year, Noel was five and he was kind of playing that role. But with Embiid kind of stationed in the paint, I assumed he'll be playing a much more conservative defensive scheme than Noel did. Um, you know, it's going to be a big adjustment for Noel, and he'll either thrive in it because he's so quick, has incredible timing as a shot blocker, plays passing lanes. He's really one of the most unique defenders in the league. Um, but like we said with Davis, actually, earlier, that's just asking a lot of him. Um, so we'll see if he can do it. But I really don't think it would it's, it would be crazy to suggest the Sixers have an outside chance at the playoffs next year. I really don't. Yeah, how I would use them is I would have Noel as the starter and have Embiid as the, as, as the complement. And so you play them together as little as possible, unless it works. Yeah. You know, if it works, then you do that. But one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I thought about it when you, when you were talking about that, the idea is I would love for Joel Embiid's rookie year to be spent dominating second units. 
Because mm-hmm. I feel like he, what he brings from a, an offensive perspective would work really well. And Philadelphia can have the guys, depending on who they're cycling through at that moment, to <laughs> defend in the second unit. Because most teams have, you know, may, maybe another team's best creator on the second unit is like CJ McCollum. CJ McCollum's a good player. You know, you're, you're getting more of that type of guys. I feel like MB can get his feet wet defensively with that. Obviously, I think he's learned a lot during this year just by being around it. That's something Blake Griffin did during his year off. Mm-hmm. And I think that they will have that. But... And then if it works, you know, if, if it works as a group, I actually think that the way you play the two of them is you move Noel defensively into a role very similar to Anthony Davis. And right. I think that there are more parallels between the two of them defensively, offensively. That's why Davis is such a freak, is that Nerlens Noel is an, all, is an all-defense caliber guy. I might have put him on my second team all-defense. I can't remember if I did, because I don't do it by position. Obviously, he wasn't the second-best defensive center in the league. He, so he's in that conversation, but then Anthony Davis provides that with all-world offense. But what Noel... I feel like Noel is going to be a part of good defensive teams for his whole career. You know, that's just one of those things he does. And something that is, to me, an underrated part of this is that if you have a really good defensive center, you're probably going to be a good defensive team. And some of that is, you know, correlation, causation, and you can get into that kind of hype. But I think we saw it with the replacement of Ennis Kanter and Rudy Gobert, is that you can get so much. They... The way I like to phrase it, you talk, you probably talked about this earlier in terms of eliminating mistakes, is that when I think about a guy like Andrew Bogut with the Warriors, is that they make a lot of those mistakes not turn into points. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so Noel is very valuable in what he does. Would it be great if he was Joel Embiid offensively? Sure, of course. <laughs> but I think that he he provides a value, and what I am excited to see is whether that would work, because... If Embiid Noel works, and I honestly think that eventually Embiid could develop the inside-outside game that is more of like a new age, a new age four with mm-hmm. center size. Like you could see him do something <clears throat> where he kind of he can hang out where Serge Ibaka hangs out, but then he can also go inside, and that makes him a great pick and roll player if if you get there. And so it could work. I, I I'm not gonna. It's not even that I'm going to write it off. I'm, I'm just, I don't think it's the optimal long-term outcome, but I am completely open to them blowing me away. Because if you look at what Favors and, and Rudy have done, Embiid Noel will probably end up being more offensively capable than those two. Yeah, I think so too. And so, I mean, if, if they work and, and can, can do it, and I believe that the Sixers, considering they're an open canvas right now at the other positions, if you if that works well enough that you can build your team with that understanding, then you get a bunch of shooters, you get a bunch of drivers and pick-and-roll players, and you make it work. D'Angelo Russell, in those circumstances, makes a lot more sense. He'd be perfect there. He would, he would be absolutely perfect there. What's great about the NBA is that the playoffs are ongoing, and it seems like they're only going to get better. And I'm already getting excited about next season, and we're talking about, you know, I don't, I don't know how many games the Sixers won this year. What was it 18, 17, something like that? Um, 18, one more than the Knicks. All right, eighteen. Um, but I'm I'm already getting excited about the Sixers, and obviously, next season is months away from happening. Uh, but just before we move on from them, because we have to at some point. The, I know, unfortunately. In terms of Embiid and Noel and whether or not they play together next year, I think that's ultimately a team building question. You know, are they content, kind of going through growing pains that will be associated with you know playing Nerlens at four for the first time in his life? Because obviously that will be the long-term formation that they want, right? You're not. I just, I sorely, I highly doubt that Philly would 
invest so much time and energy and you know draft picks obviously into those guys um and then have one come off the bench uh eventually they'll want Noel and Embiid to play alongside one another and while that might not be the next thing for them to win games next year it will be the best thing for them for their long-term growth so yeah we'll see what happens there and I think that's kind of one of the biggest questions facing them going forward and heck maybe they'll they'll draft Carl Anthony Towns and then they'll just create a Hydra and it'll be amazing <laughs> that that would be amazing. Well, if you recall, we almost got it with Noel and Davis. We um, did have it. Yeah. So uh, I'll tell I'll tell a very quick story with that. That I, I made a decision that draft. I actually, wrote a little bit about it for Real GM. That full credit to Adrian Wojnarowski. He's an incredible writer. I wanted to have a draft without without having anything spoiled for me. So I was off Twitter. I was off everything. I'm a big draft nerd. That's how I started with Real GM. Actually, whopping six plus years ago, and. That was the draft that I, I had nothing. So when that pick happened, I was actually jumping up and down, probably. I have to think <laughs> back. I was so excited. It was one of those it was one of those moments that were like, this is going to be amazing. And that was back before Ryan Anderson got some of his maladies, so I was thinking, you know, that team is going to be a new age a new age NBA team when they get you know, when they when they get a coach who can appreciate it, they can do all these things. And then I heard about the trade, and I, I was crestfallen. I mean, that's the best way to put it, because when you're like us, and we're fans of the league in general, as opposed right. to a, a singular team, you want those experiences. And it was incredibly disappointing that we have seen it. And I don't, and I don't want to share how much time I've spent playing the NBA 2K games with those guys on the same team. I haven't been <laughs> doing it. It's one, of, it's one of those things, but... You know, it's very frustrating, but I'll I'll transition into something that we just talked about, which is the middle class of the East, because a couple of those middle class teams made the playoffs this year, and I would classify that as the Bucks and the Celtics. Right. From what you saw in the regular season and in the playoffs, do you think that they're those in those spots that you, we would expect them to be in the playoffs? Let's assume they stay East and West separate for the next, I don't know, four or five years? Well, the Celtics just have so much room for flexibility in terms of cap space and draft considerations that, you know, we're really not sure, right? I think the, the group that we're seeing now, uh, you know, actually kind of their transition all year. I don't know how many players went through Boston this year. It seemed like over 20. Um, Brad Stevens had a great quote about that, actually. They're just kind of in flux right now, and I think they'll continue to be uh, for next season, certainly, and maybe even the one after that. But Milwaukee uh, appears set for me, even after even after making the Brandon Knight, Michael Carter Williams trade. Um, they kind of struggled uh, after the All Star break this year. They got out to a very nice start, kind of kind of were the surprise of the league, other than Atlanta, for the first three or four months of the year, and then kind of kind of had a letdown. And they were, I'm looking I'm looking at their uh, their record now. They were 31 and 23 on February 20th, and they finished the year 41-41. and 41. Obviously, that's not a good finish. Um, you know, and integrating a new piece like Carter Williams is a big part of that. But I really think they're set for a long time. Uh, Giannis obviously has a step to, has many steps to take. Um, you know, and Jabari Parker, he was very, very, very good, really, really coming on uh, before he tore his ACL. I believe it was late November, I think. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I think they're absolutely set as a playoff team for the next several years. Uh, their peak remains to be seen, uh, just because we're not sure how good Giannis and Jabari can be. But if those guys reach their ceilings, uh, Milwaukee can really be an Eastern Conference contender for years to come. But the Celtics, like I said, they're just they just have so much room for flexibility going forward, which I and I assume they'll use it. You know, it's just it's harder to say. Yeah, and 
and I fully expect to see stronger seasons out of Indiana and Miami because right. those teams both have lots of talent that was missing due to injury, and that will squeeze it a little bit. I think that the Nets are an easy team to, to mark out there, but... It's it's so funny because I think we're going to see if if they maintain the if they maintain the separate conferences for the playoffs. I think we'll see fun playoff races on both sides. It's just going to be that they're one tier or maybe two tiers apart from one another. You know, the western teams yeah. would the western teams would finish and the, the bottom teams in the west I think would finish in the 3 to 5 range in the east and then those east teams would be, you know, would be out of the race. But so some people would say, "Hey, that makes it more exciting." I'm somebody who's partial to I think the best team should make it. I also think that that makes it a more fair route to the championship and and everything like that. But it would be fun to see how they go. And I think, again, talking about the idea of what teams could be, I sincerely hope that we get even a a 30 to 40 game stretch of this Miami team that I think we all saw when when they did the the Goran Dragic trade at the deadline before, sadly, Chris Bosh's. Yeah. Medical news happened. I mean, I think they could be dynamite in a bottle to watch, and they could win a bunch of games too. I mean, you look at their starting five. It's you know, it's Dragic, it's Wade, it's Dang, Bosch, and then Hassan Whiteside. That's as talented a starting five, arguably, as there is in the league. Uh, obviously, that you know, on paper talent doesn't equate to wins. And uh, Eric Spolster has a big task at hand in terms of kind of revamping. Um, his team's offense and in their in their defensive scheme, especially uh, you know with all those guys in tow, and then obviously their bench is really really poor. <laughs> so uh, the Heat certainly have the talent to be very good next season, though. And just kind of getting back to what you were saying about the discrepancies between the races in the West and East is that we would have had that in the East this year. We really would have had some um, you know heated competition for the you know for those playoff spots but injuries just ravaged ravaged the league this year and ravaged the east um you know the the indiana pacers should have been a 50 win team this year miami obviously uh you know i and i think we'll start to see that here next season hopefully from what we've seen so far in the playoffs the hawks have played six they no not six games now they played eight games now mm-hmm. do you do you think that they're still a, a a contender to make the finals and then a contender maybe to win it? I was talking to some people about this last night, and I just can't get a read on the Hawks right now. I really can't. I, I picked them to win the East. Uh, I think I picked them, like I put little time into these predictions, to be honest with you, but I, th- I think I picked them to beat the um, Cleveland Cavaliers in five in the Eastern Conference Finals before losing to the Spurs, which you know should probably tell you how much credence you should take from my predictions. Um, but... Yeah, I, I really can't get a read on them. Uh, I think a, a kind of a big a big tipping point for them will be the health of Jeff Teague. Uh, he sprained his ankle in Game 1, uh, in the first quarter of Game 1 of the Eastern Conference semifinals, and then came back a few minutes later and was clearly not the same player in Game 2. For all talk of Atlanta, Atlanta's incredible ball movement and great shooting, you know, most of it stemmed, perhaps not most, but a lot of it stemmed from Teague's ability to consistently crease the paint and draw defenders and um, you know force rotations, and they're not getting that right now. So I'll, I'll say it again. I just, I just don't know what, what to expect from the Hawks right now. I do not at all think it's time to write them off. Uh, obviously, they just won a game last night fairly handily, though John Wall didn't play. But in, in terms of them being the Eastern Conference favorite uh, that I thought they were, and I thought they were a strong favorite before the playoffs, uh, you know, I don't think you can say that anymore. 
Yeah, at the same time, though, I think they might have a, you could make a reasonable argument that they are right now the most likely team to win the Eastern Conference because if John Wall is out for any extended period of time, I don't think the Wizards can win those games. I, I just straight up, I don't think they can. They played they played really well last night. I, th- I think they, they played well last night, but they didn't play well enough to win a game against the Hawks other than when the Hawks are at their worst. Uh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you there. John Wall... Um, you know, he's, he's arguably the best defensive point guard in the league. Uh, he's not really considered thusly, but when you look at the Wizards' defensive stats with him on and off the floor and just kind of watch film of him and how disruptive he can be when he's consistently engaged, he's a plus-plus player on that end. And then, obviously, he's kind of the straw that stirs the drink for them offensively. They look absolutely lost in the vast majority of the time when he's been off the floor in the playoffs and in the, or in the regular season, too, and the numbers support that. Without Wall, I can't imagine the Wizards winning this series. And even with a limited Wall, it'll it'll definitely be tough. And that's irrespective of whether or not Atlanta kind of finds their uh, their kind of elite form that they showed in December and January. And tying in with their first round series, was there any team that was more disappointing in the playoffs so far than the Raptors? <sighs> no, not at all. Um, and I, I was gonna say I, I kind of saw it coming, but they're just another team that kind of fit and uh, that kind of fell apart in the last couple months of the season. When the Wizards look like that too, right? Um, and and now they sudden now they suddenly look like a potential uh, finals team. But no, there's absolutely uh, no team that was more disappointing than the Raptors. And and when we're talking about questions for for teams in future seasons, it's this off season is a very very important one for Toronto. And obviously, Masai Ujiri is a guy that isn't afraid to take risks and isn't afraid to rock the boat. He kind of said, kind of came out and said after their uh, after their sweep at the hands of Washington that he'd kind of play a longer game here and stick with this group and make subtle adjustments as opposed to a complete roster overhaul. But just based on what we saw against Washington, man, I'm not, I'm just not sure that they're going to, they're going to have what it takes going forward to, you know, really contend for a finals appearance. Yeah, I've picked against them, for what I recall. I've picked against them both years in the playoffs because I just don't think that their roster is, is great for as a playoff team because they're one of those teams that when you... To me, they're, they're as almost as dependent, if not more dependent, on Kyle Lowry as the Wizards are on John Wall because they just don't have guys they can do that. DeRozan's a good player. I don't see him really as a creator. He's more of a maximizer of other people's creation, which is which is very valuable. You know, That's more like Clay in that sense. Mm-hmm. And their interior guys... All have strengths and weaknesses. I think Amir Johnson's a little bit underappreciated, but and Jonas, I've been high on forever. But at a certain point, potential has to turn into production. That's that's the big thing, right? Is if is if Valanciunas takes that step to being a to being a kind of impactful player on both ends. Um, if he can, if they can keep him on the floor defensively in, in clutch situations, uh, you know that that would really be the tipping point for them. But like you said, potential has to has to turn into production, and it hasn't quite yet. So we'll see we'll see what's we'll see what's going to happen with Toronto. I'm actually higher on DeRozan than you are. I think he made some strides this year as a ball handler and creator that I frankly didn't think he'd make. Um, he actually looked very good in the playoffs as well after kind of a yeah, he did fun. kind of a dispiriting March. Uh, he kind of picked it up picked it back up in April, but he played well in the playoffs. And you know, with he and Lowry, they'll always have a shot. Um, but unless Jonas takes that step, they're going to be you know they're going to be kind of a middle middle of the road playoff team as opposed to a real contender. Yeah, the, what, the phrase I would use with them is is offer dependent, which means that I would put I would have everybody on their team as somebody that I would listen to, but I wouldn't just trade them to trade them. If you it, basically what you're hoping for is is a team that overvalues them, and 
I will use that to jump to make a transition that most people won't understand, but you might, which is to Harrison Barnes. And <laughs> I am I am firmly in the camp that while Harrison Barnes fits the personality of this team, assuming they're not going to trade Clay Thompson, which I don't think they are, they I think that small forward is where the Warriors need to go aggressively if somebody is willing to to buy high on Harrison to make the what I would call the final upgrade to this court. Do you recall, uh, God, I think it must have been two years ago now, Barnes' rookie year, um, when there were what seemed like a majority of Warriors fans, uh, if the, if the Warriors were going to trade either Clay or Harrison, that, you know, they should trade Clay. That was the, that, a very vocal, a very vocal majority thought that. People love potential. People <sighs> love, pot- it's, it's the whole mystery box thing. It's the mystery box can be anything. I understand that. I'm the same way. You know, it, but, oh no, I I I love potential. I mean, we just we just spent how you know, ten minutes talking about Joel Embiid and Nerlens Noel. I think that I think that shows you how much both of us enjoy talking about what players could be. Um, but I, and frankly, I never saw it with Harrison Barnes. Um, you know, even after his supposedly breakout playoff performance, his rookie year, when he just bullied Tony Parker in the post, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but got what seemed like. 16 points per game on 14 or 15 shots and you know people were going crazy for those numbers and uh kind of the flashes of flashes of athleticism that he still shows on a consistent basis but he's a guy that will always be you know supporting peace and that's absolutely not a bad thing but the hope for the warriors like you said is that other teams haven't quite realized that yet and that they can sell high on him right now because eventually they're not going to be able to flip saunders call <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it, and I, I've never talked about this mostly because I'm scared of Warriors fans coming after me, which I, I don't admit I'm scared very often. But the reason that Harrison Barnes did so well against the Nuggets was that George Carl did maybe the worst job of adjusting that I've ever seen a coach do in the playoffs. Which incidentally is why I picked the Warriors in that series is that I thought something like that could happen. Not that I predicted the injury or anything, but he he did that, and they put Kenneth Fareed on on Harrison Barnes and with no practice and with no experience guarding a a perimeter player, that's just not what he does. And so he exploded in that series. And then in the Spurs one, I think it was more the idea of the Spurs wanted anybody but Stephen Curry to beat them. And Harrison Barnes is the best choice at that time. I mean, that was back before Andre Godala's shot started sputtering, I guess is the most polite word for it. And Harrison benefited a lot from that. He did a he did a relatively nice job. And as you said, there was a big disparity between his counting stats and his impact. Yeah. But absolutely. I have to give him credit. He is doing a great job right now of being all over the floor, being aggressive, understanding that he is the equivalent of a glue guy on this team. He deserves a ton of credit for that. But the NBA is a very different place because you can build a team with, without glue guys. You can do what Miami did at stretches. You can do what the Spurs did, where you can have everybody be really good. You don't have mm-hmm. to have those guys because when you have somebody like like Draymond Green, who is a glue guy defensively but is also a star defensively, and you can do things like that, if they could have a creator, if they could have a you know a, somebody who defenses are scared of, that would be a huge development for the long-term viability of this team, because the Warriors are doing really well right now, but they are very, what I would call, super team vulnerable. And what that means is that they are the best of a crop that might start improving. And I mean, it might be Cleveland if they can ever stay healthy and understand, you know, really get into it. It could be 
wherever Kevin Durant goes, if he goes somewhere else, it could even be Oklahoma City, you know, if things work out. And so if the Warriors are, again, if the Warriors are happy where they are and they have a very good chance of winning the championship this year, they can do that, and I, I wouldn't fault them for it. But I feel that they could get better than this, and I think they could get substantially better than this. I agree, and you keep saying that, and I and I agree with you on this on this point as well. That the the Golden State kind of needs someone that the, that a defense kind of fears and respects and treats as a threat um, at small forward. And when you're looking at the roster now, what the Warriors basically need is a perfect amalgam of Andre Iguodala and Harrison Barnes, right? A guy that has to be respected to the three point line, but but can also put the ball on the floor, uh, play nominal point guard, so Steph can work off the ball. If Steve Kerr could combine Iguodala and Barnes' talents, the Warriors would have that guy. Unfortunately, it's not quite that easy. Or uh, they can sign Anthony Davis in 2017. <laughs> there you go. I think, I think that uh, that sweepstakes will be pretty heated. Oh man! Well, I, the, the Anthony Davis thing. I mean, I, I wrote a piece that got a little bit of a little bit of negative attention on it. But the because I, I wrote about how if he wanted to, and I actually think he should, he could be an unrestricted free agent in 2017 by taking his qualifying offer. Right. Exactly. It's a huge financial risk. But well, real quick, for a guy that talented though, and a guy who's you know who by all accounts will be an all-time great, I is that is that financial risk really there? What injury could he possibly have? where a team wouldn't sign him to a max deal. Right, since, since we haven't seen each other, I haven't played the Anthony Davis injury game with you. The Anthony Davis injury game is, what would it take for a team to not offer him a max contract? And to give you loss, a little bit of a... Loss of a limb. I, I think microfracture is the word that you would have to hear. Oh, I really? I think I seriously think it would take much, much more than that. Like, I, something, something absolutely catastrophic that would leave him, that would leave him disabled. I'm dead. I'm dead serious. Yeah. So, so to me, yeah. In that case, so yeah. If, if you're if you're making that argument, and I certainly think that's fair, then really he's making a risk because you have the da- you have the downside possibility, a small risk, but also you have the short term loss of one year's salary. But we could be looking at 2017 because that will presumably be the next year with a new CBA mm-hmm. of a of a change in the concept of a max contract. And even if they bump it up, let's say five percent. Like they, you know, they they go from twenty five thirty thirty five to thirty thirty five forty, which seems possible to me, especially with you see the the relative power of LeBron James and Chris Paul in the Players Association, which is unusual historically for the MVPA. I think we could see something like that. But for me, it's not even as much about the money. It's it's about having the power to influence the direction of your team. I mean, you think about. LeBron James and people sometimes talk about, oh, he should have won Executive of the Year. Oh, all this stuff yeah. he's been doing. He's done a pretty good job doing that. He did a lot better than Dwight Howard did when he was apparently rumored to have a hand in the personnel moves. I think if you're Anthony Davis, you look at what LeBron went through that first time with the Cavs when they just kept on doing these short-term fixes. They kept on taking risks on guys that didn't make any sense with him. I mean, his best teammates were often guys who couldn't shoot like Larry Hughes. Sorry, Larry. I mean, when, when there's a URL, I, I don't know if it still exists. I th- believe it was something like, hey, Larry Hughes, stop taking so many bad shots.com. <laughs> First of all, if the person who created that is listening to this podcast, I'm a fan of yours forever. Yeah, Second seriously. of all, it was appropriate. But LeBron, once he was able to control more of that, he was his player smart enough to understand who he worked with. And the other dynamic of that with Davis is if he is a free agent in 2017, unrestricted, he can also recruit to New Orleans in a very different way because what he can say is to these guys is I won't like to Stephen Curry who's a free agent the same year I want to play with you 
we can do it wherever, but New Orleans is a pretty awesome city. Look at how much fun I'm having here. We could do it here. And I think he actually gains, in some ways, more flexibility to do that during the 2016 Olympics if he's just a free agent that year as opposed to saying, I'm here, come play with me. It's just, let's play together. Yeah, and then, I, and, then, I, and, then you woo, and then you woo them there as opposed to somewhere else. That's what Wade did, basically. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating, kind of a, a fascinating point that I hadn't considered at all. Uh, to be honest with you, I just hadn't thought that far ahead. I can I can barely consider Kevin Durant's free agency next summer. But but yeah, that's a uh, that's an avenue that if Davis is comfortable taking, um, you know, taking the one year qualifying offer and. Sacrificing, I'm, you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes here. Sacrificing all that cash uh, just for one year, um, you know, in terms of team building, that would certainly be the best approach to take. But uh, you know, leaving so much money on the table and not knowing for absolute certain that it's coming back will be very, very difficult. And that's why we haven't seen you know a max level player take that approach. Yeah, and we could actually. There's an outside, outside chance we'll see it this year, just because there could be a, a substantial difference in terms of the max contracts. And to get CBA nerdy for a second, because it's in my it's in my blood, the way that this matters is because a, a player's contract is is dependent on the first year. You can only rise or fall a certain percentage based mm-hmm. on that first year. So if you're Kawhi Leonard, and you can get, and you can get. 20 million next year as opposed to 15 this year possibly and Amino Hassan of ESPN did a great job laying out the possible max contract structure so if you guys have ESPN Insider read it but the the idea of that is that you would want is that you could you could do that and also as we talked about you could get more flexibility so I actually think we're going to we could see somebody else do that too I'm not going to call it on any particular player like Kawhi or Jimmy Butler but it might happen this summer, and then you get a whole year of fascinating subplots. Right. It, it, I mean, we, and one of the one of the aspects, and I think you're a good guy to talk with about this, is that we're seeing a group in the NBA now. There, there are two changes that are happening. One change is the league is starting to get substantially more money, and so you're seeing you're seeing that the 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 lay of the land and the landscape is changing dramatically, and I think. A lot of people don't have an understanding for how much this affects everyone in the league. The second thing is, we're in a generation of players, for whatever reason, that whether it's them or their advisors or whatever, that are much more cognizant of their power and their possibilities than before. Mm-hmm. And guys like Michael Jordan and Larry Bird were fortunate that they got drafted into major markets and had surrounding talent before, and they were in a very different structure, but... Not only can guys now succeed in different markets, but they are more aware of it. And I mean, you can use LeBron as the poster child, but LeBron is far from from the exception. He is closer to the to the average, and I think that's what we're going to see with Kevin Durant as well. And so, while there are no wrong answers, I think that these guys are more willing to do what is best for them and understand that their brand is their brand and they will do put themselves in the best situation to succeed on the aggregate as mm-hmm. opposed to, oh, well, I'll stick it out here and hopefully it'll work out. Yeah, obviously, you know, globalization, social media, things of that nature have a lot to do with that. But I think a lot of it, too, does the, you know, the culture, the, the NBA culture, you know, that's been developed between players since, you know, this specific group of players since they grew up together on the AAU circuit, right? Uh, you know, we saw that we saw that first with LeBron James teaming with Dwayne Wade and uh, and Chris Bosh, 
And, you know, I think we might see again here. These guys are close. You know, the stars are close in today's NBA. And there's a reason for that. And when you're, when you're so confident and you know that, you know, your brand won't be hurt by, you know, potentially going to a place like New Orleans, uh, as opposed to Los Angeles or New York or another major media market, um, you know, you know, you're going to have those same endorsements, play with another great player, um, maybe even enhance your brand by winning a championship. Uh, you know, that just makes, it just makes free agency all the more interesting. And, you know, and given the, given the inevitable cap spikes here, we'll be seeing in 2016 and 2017, um, you know, that, that makes it even more interesting. So these next two summers will be absolutely wild. Uh, and from a coverage standpoint, I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. Last summer, last summer was insane to me. And, you know, this one hopefully won't be quite as crazy, but the next two certainly will be. Yeah, I'll expand it to the next three. I actually think that 2017 will be the most interesting of the three. It'd be for, for a couple of different, well, also, oh, we're, dealing oh, sure. with, we're dealing with the possibility of the lockout, which, uh, right. I don't even want to think about it. But yeah, it's, we're, we're heading into a stretch and, uh, that, is very exciting for me and also for being somebody affiliated with Real GM, which is at kind of at the front of a lot of these kind of topics, is that the NBA is about to become a big business. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there there's there's some growing pains that will come along with that. I think that the players might not understand what that means from a time perspective and from a media perspective because people are about to care what they do in ways that players have never wanted them to care. And that could be a problem. But at the same time, what I think is might be the single biggest takeaway from this year off the court is that players are getting a much more direct incentive to be themselves off the court. Mm-hmm. I'm somebody who's covered Stephen Curry since he came into the league. The public perception on him is very, very, very close to what I understand to be his reality. And players can can do that now. They don't have to be that. I think LeBron has done well with that. I think Carmelo Anthony has done very well with that. I think Melo has made his own path that way, and I think he's doing well with what he wanted. You know, I'm yeah. sad that what he wanted did not really involve winning. But <laughs> hey, you know, if he wants to be a brand, if he wants to be, you know, if he wants to be be it an empire himself, he can. He picked the right place to do that. He made that happen. I give him all the credit in the world. But we're seeing it at smaller levels, too. I mean, you see guys who have Twitter followers. Damian Lillard, I think, has done one of the best jobs of building a brand himself that anybody, maybe anybody has done in in all of professional sports, much less North American sports, because people, and people like him for him. And what what these people found is that if they're not jerks and if they build off of the positive aspects of themselves and they listen to the smart people that are in in their corner, they can develop a very different following and one of the best things that the NBA has done in a lot of ways for me is that they have encouraged people to become fans of players and fans of the league as opposed to fans of a single team Mm -hmm. and to me that's how you build it if you want to be the next NFL that's how you do it and yeah you can run into long-term consequences in terms of what the NFL has to go through that people would rather stay home and watch all the games as opposed to going to see their team play. But that's a relatively small concern if you can get people to just say, hey, we're the best league in the world. We have the best players in the world. We let them be themselves. And basketball is the single best sport for that because it is both a team and individual sport in a way that baseball and football just are not. And so they can 
they can use this and build on this to develop stars in a way that they always wanted to but never could. Well, if you're looking for an indication of what you're, of you know how you so eloquently put it, you know, has there ever, or just think of the shift that Kevin Durant has made to his public persona here over the last year. You know, he went from kind of a, a choir boy, if you will, in the nature of Stephen Curry, to a guy who is openly contentious with the media, and you know hasn't been afraid to kind of rankle some social media feathers every now and then. Um, you know, and is he any less popular for it? I'd say no. Um, you know, he's still. Arguably the second most popular player, or second or third most popular player in the NBA, considering Steph's rise. Um, you know, I think, and I think that's a very good indication of it. Same with Russell Westbrook. Um, you know, the NBA really has become an avenue for these guys to be themselves and build a brand that you know they they can kind of construct, and it's unique to the NBA. Not only because, like you said, basketball is more of an individual team sport than anyone else, but during games we see these guys' faces. Um, you know, they're not wearing helmets, things like that, uh, that, you know, that people don't really consider, uh, but really go into, you know, everything that makes an NBA player's brand, you know, so much bigger and so much more marketable than a football player's or baseball player's, for instance. And also you see their personality on the court so much more because they impact every facet of the game. When you're watching LeBron James play, you know, you're watching LeBron James. It's more like kind of a, a real big actor in a movie, you know, where you're, you're seeing them and you know that they're a part of it. And if you want to see him play, you can do that. And basketball is a sport that enables all of that. You know, the Warriors are Stephen Curry's team. They're a team that works because he's there. And the NBA is a sport that is also very supportive in that sense of role players. I think something that I've gained, I've gained such a huge appreciation for Tony Allen over the last couple of years, but particularly this playoffs, because he's just a destroyer. He's a wrecker on defense. His personality is exudes it's through you can see it through every report i'm sad that since i was at the game last night i didn't get to hear the mike depp stuff apparently it was unbelievable it was quite good first team all defense and so i think that we are in a place now where it's not just the stars everybody can do that brandon jennings is another guy who has a who has a very interesting twitter thing he's actually started some music arguments from what i recall Mm -hmm. but and so and so what what they can do is these are guys who who put their personality into the sport and basketball is also a sport where very often your personality on the court can be a reflection of your personality off the court mm-hmm. and and so you see guys you know guys like lebron who are more unselfish and do all that kind of stuff but if you want to do it with your personality and I, you can do you can succeed in so many ways now and that's great, you know, and, and if a guy doesn't want to do that, you know, if he doesn't wants to keep, maintain a quiet presence, they can do that, too. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But there are so many more positive avenues. And I, I'm really excited to see where this goes. I could, you put it better than I ever could. I completely I, I completely agree with you on uh, on all points there. Well, thanks. I think about this a lot. It's, yeah. it's, 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 <laughs> I can tell <laughs> it's it, it, because there there's a big picture here that I, I'm somebody who I, I'm not going to talk about where I've been involved in it, but who's been involved in politics a lot. And I think that there are a lot of parallels that NBA players should be scared of, but there are some parallels that they should be excited about. And it's what what the NBA needs. The only thing that they need to do is they need to make league pass more accessible and they need to stop this. Again, another one from our colleague, from our colleague and friend, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, they need to stop letting the NCAA be such a big thing. 
Yeah, because I, I, mean, I agree with you there they for just, sure. They need to take fully embrace, we are the best in the world, they are a feeder. Americans, in almost all facets, embrace the best. You know, it's it's what they do. You know, it's why it's a part of the reason my theory on why Americans broadly, though it's getting better and props to them for it, have never fully embraced MLS, but are actually going more towards Champions League and and EPL and things like that because mm-hmm. you want to see the best in the world. It's why people watch the Olympics and everything else. And the NBA needs to focus a little bit more on that and say, you know, you can, you can basically like make, make college basketball feel like high school basketball, which is how it feels to me now. It's, it certainly looked that way this season from what I watched. I less, I watched less, fewer college basketball this season than I, than I have at any other point in my life. Yeah. Um, I I fell in love with basketball as a, through college basketball when I was, when I was at UCLA and as I've covered the league now for six years, uh, it starts to feel now to me like high school basketball felt to me when I was in college. And what's, it just, just happens. Real quick, what's interesting about that from our perspective specifically is that you went to UCLA, I went to Kansas. Obviously, we're watching very, very good college basketball, and it's just such an inferior product on all levels compared to the NBA. Uh, and I, I totally agree with, with Ethan and you in terms of the NBA needs to do what it can to limit the influence of college basketball. But the question I have is does that risk alienating a certain subset of people who just consider themselves basketball fans as opposed to NBA fans or college basketball fans? It definitely makes it a harder marketing job to do, but I certainly think you can do it. I mean, if you focus on best and you don't, there's a way, again, going back to politics, that you can do this in in terms of positive messaging, that you make the negative the implication. And and the other component of that, and I I don't necessarily want to open this Pandora's box, but the (laughs) other way to do this is by changing the draft process. And making it a little bit more open, making it a little bit more flexible, and forcing the NCAA's hand to basically allow people to come back if they if they don't let's say if they don't latch onto a team, mm-hmm. and if you if you open if the NBA opens up their process and expands their rosters and do, does some does some tweaks, then what you're also doing is not only are you forcing the NCAA to become a little bit more flexible, which helps the players, and I think that the NBA players would actually be very receptive to that because they understand the process. So it's kind of one of those rare common grounds between the players and the owners. But it also does this really fun implication of like, oh, these are the guys that can't make the NBA. And you never have to say it, Mm -hmm. but you'd be like, hey, this guy... Props to him. He tried to he tried to make it. You know, he tried to come out after his freshman year. He he went to training camp with the team. He didn't make it. Now he's back in college. Yay! He's back in college. We can celebrate him. But hey, these are all the guys who beat him out. <laughs> you know, this guy this guy's great. He couldn't make he couldn't make anyone's fifteen. And the other component of that, and this is this we can end it here. This is my favorite crazy idea. Is I wrote I wrote a tweet about it. I've been thinking about it a lot ever since. Is that the NBA should open up non-postseason roster spots for 10-day contracts for guys after their college season ends. So That's a fascinating If idea. you could give Jaleel Okafor a 10-day on the Sixers, let's say, or wherever, and so they're, they're not postseason eligible. They're not going to go through anything like that. And I would even say, if you have to code it in there, that it doesn't take away their Rookie of the Year eligibility. Mm-hmm. But even if they don't necessarily play in games, but say, hey, this is what life is like in the NBA. You want to get a sense of it? We we can sign you to a ten day or two. That's all we're allowed to do. We can't, you know, you have to go through the draft process, whatever that process is. But 
it would give those guys that process. And, and if the NCAA wants to be jerks about it and say, oh, if you do that, then you can't come back, then that's not the NBA's problem. And so you, what you do is you, it, it helps with the transition. I think it would be great. And you, and it also would give non-playoff teams something to draw fans. You know, mm-hmm. if you're the Charlotte Hornets, if you're the Sacramento Kings and you're a team that, you know, maybe they had some aspirations. If you're the Phoenix Suns and you had some aspirations of doing some better things and it wasn't a great season for you. And so your fans are sitting there at the end of the year and all of a sudden you're the Kings and Ivan Rab, Rob or Jalen Brown, the guys who are going to Cal next year, they're available and you can sign them to a 10 day contract. All of a sudden those games become the must see games of the year. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, then the NBA has games that they can put on NBA TV. They can say, hey, these are the guys who are next. Those players get unbelievable exposure, both on a public knowledge standpoint and from a learning what the NBA is standpoint. So, yeah, it sucks for college, but who cares? And we talked about building, we've been talking about building a brand here for what seems like 20 minutes. And you know, think about that for a guy like Jalen Brown, Yvonne Robb, or Jaleel Okafor, people of that ilk who are going to be marquee players in the NBA eventually, just to become kind of a flash in the pan for a little while before their NBA careers begin. Think of the marketing opportunities there. And think uh, about think about the flash, like, you know, even a guy like Wiggins. Like, right. Wiggins would have done that. Dante Exum, if you would have him. I mean, maybe you, if you were Dante Exum, you might not want to get that exposure because you have the mystery component to it. But right, yeah. if, you know, Joel Embiid, well, Embiid was, was hurt, so yeah, I guess he wouldn't have really done but it... It's one of those, another way to build a brand also makes the instant transition from college fans to pro fans. It's not, mm-hmm. hey, look at this guy that, look at this guy from Jimmer Fredette from a few months ago. He was a wonderful player. Look at him on the team. Hey, it's the next week. Here he is. Here I, he is on an NBA. I like that one, especially because it allows, uh, allows a possibility for people like us who kind of watch too much basketball, so understand how. Uh, how much trouble a guy like Fredette has will, would have translating to the NBA uh, kind of gives us a little more credence than um, you know than the many college fans who thought he'd come in and immediately become a twenty point scorer just based off his college days. So can you imagine what would have happened if Jimmer had been allowed to sign the ten day with the Jazz after that after his last season at BYU? Oh wow, it would have been amazing on so many different levels. I mean, it would have been sellouts, it would have been league pass, and if you want to be really fun about it... And it NBA, would have been a disaster. It, it would have been a disaster, but if you're the NBA, then you just coincidentally, right as those open up, you offer a free league pass. Yeah, for, there you go. For a couple of days, and you just and you just let, just let try to get people, I mean, and the other thing, and, and we, we can really end on this, is I've said for a long time that they should do a what I call a showcase game once a week on some network. I, I would guess it would probably be ESPN or TNT. I'm sure they'd agree to this. And it's not going to be a game where the goal is to, is to get ratings. The goal is to be, say, hey, you've heard your friends talk about Anthony Davis. Now you can watch him. You don't have to pay for League Pass. You can watch him. It's a Sunday afternoon. We're going to show you Anthony Davis versus Andrew Wiggins. Right. Watch it. Enjoy it. And with the way that Twitter is now, I feel like it would it would go to a whole different level. And the NBA has done a traditionally terrible job of identifying their stars ahead of time. Kevin Durant was barely on national TV the, the year that the first year they made the finals. That's the year I was right. Thinking of. Yeah, twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Like they that Oklahoma City team was the most fun team. They were a team that people like you and I would talk about. Was, oh, they're the league pass team. You know, they're all this. They should have been the team. They shouldn't have been the right. league pass team. And. 
opening up that process and say, saying to those saying, hey, our job is building it. And we, we you know, we know that your primetime schedule is, is set. You guys, you know, ABC, you guys do you guys do a good job. But I don't think you guys need you guys could do something at noon on a Sunday during or maybe like 3 p.m. on a Sunday. And hey, let's put some games on. That is, I've liked all your ideas thus far, and frankly, I don't know how you have the brain space to think of them and then, you know, analyze as much uh, as much of actually going on that you do. <laughs> but I don't one, sleep. I get, I get, I, I thought I wasn't sleeping. My God, but th- this one, uh, this one seems by far the most realistic. Like, I actually think we could see this happening, and frankly, I don't know why it hasn't happened already. Yeah, so I, I mean, I totally agree with you there. That'd be awesome. For that'd be that'd be that'd be great. Well, we've we've talked enough. Um, we've talked so, a lot. <laughs> so, uh, thanks so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, man. Yeah, man, absolutely. Talk to you soon. Thanks again to Jack Winter for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Dime Magazine or DimeMag.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Armstrong Winter. That's A R M S T R O N G W I N T E R. Really loved the conversation. Honestly, it was fun to listen to it again as I edited it. I found a lot of things, and it made me made me think about a lot of other concepts that are fun to think about with the NBA, and uh, that's part of the reason I like talking with Jack. And so, hope you liked it too. Also want to make sure that those of you who listen to Real Jam Radio, thank you that you're aware of and want to give a chance to the Dunked On podcast. It's Nate Duncan's project. I've been thrilled to be involved in it. It's it's already doing well, and I think it's only going to grow from here. It's a daily basketball podcast. comes out every weekday, and it's been fabulous so far, and I'm really excited to see how it grows over the next few weeks and months. I mean, we're three weeks in and was already in the top ten I've heard as high as number three on the sports charts on iTunes. So give that a listen for both podcasts. It's great if you subscribe. It's also great if you write a review. I really do appreciate it. And also, if you want to communicate with me, if you want to give feedback on Real Jam Radio, I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. You can email me at daniel.larue at realjam.com, or the best way is actually to hit me up on Twitter at Larue. That's D-A-N-N-Y. L-E-R-O-U-X. As I said, I read everything, I respond to as much as I can, and I appreciate it because that's how the show gets better. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.